MP, it's our final event of the year. Oh, it's all a bit sad, Bretto, but after four big events for 2018, we are going out with a bang with one more wellness base camp, and the location for this one is regional Victoria, the great town of Bendigo awaits. Oh, and how's this for a lineup, MP? Bendigo will be rocking with the rock star of wellness, Damien Christoph. The art of self-love angel herself, Kim Morrison, hits the stage. As will the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. And I'll tell you what, Steph's presentation at the summit on fasting was a showstopper. You'll be there, Bretto. I'll be there too. And Wendy Stewart from Wendy's Way will be there to share her inspirational story, which really did go off at the Wellness Summit earlier this year. It's Saturday, October 27 at the beautiful All Seasons Resort Hotel in Bendigo and tickets are selling fast. Two for one tickets for this one day of inspiration, information and empowerment are available at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's right, folks. Get your two for one tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com before they run out and then the price goes up. Finish your year of wellness in style at the Wellness Base Camp in Bendigo, Saturday, October 27. Tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Welcome back, guys. I am seriously so excited about today's conversation. Today we are diving into the world of Asperger's with none other than Professor Tony Atwood. Now any intro for this incredible man will fall short of the enormity of his accomplishments and brilliance in the area of Asperger's. He's incredibly gifted and I'm so grateful for his untiring spirit and the tireless work that he has done in the field of autism. Now, if for some reason you haven't heard of Tony Atwood, he's a clinical psychologist who specialises in autism spectrum disorders and has since 1975. He currently works in his own private practice and is also an adjunct professor at the Griffith University in Queensland and senior consultant at the Minds and Hearts Clinic in Brisbane. His book, Asperger's Syndrome, A Guide for Parents and Professionals, has sold over 400,000 copies. And his subsequent book, The Complete Guide to Asperger's Syndrome, is one of the primary textbooks on Asperger's. Tony presents workshops and runs training courses for parents, professionals and individuals with Asperger's Syndrome all over the world. He's a prolific author and of scientific papers and books on the subject. He has worked with thousands of individuals of all ages with Asperger's or an autism spectrum disorder. And it is an absolute pleasure and privilege to welcome Professor Tony Atwood to chat with us today. Oh, thank you. Rihanna, there should be a round of applause, I think, but I had no idea you're going to say such accolades. Now, that's really set me up. Now people are expecting these fantastic, great words of wisdom. This is going to be wonderful. So, okay, well, let's start. <laughs> Let's get into it. No, they are all well-deserved. Um, Thank you. For sure. And it's an honour to have you on the podcast today. Okay. There was, there was a time when I would say that would uh, prevent a midlife crisis. I now, I'm afraid, have to say it prevents retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'll keep you in the game. Yeah. 
Okay, so the first thing that I start off by asking all of my guests is a bit about their backstory. And I'd love to hear a bit about yours and how you became so involved and so passionate about working with people on the spectrum. Mm. That's actually a, a very good question. I think I'll go through it in sequence, not necessarily chronologically. The sequence is that I was a 19-year-old psychology student uh, just on my first year and went to be a volunteer at a special school. This is way back in 1971 when we knew very little about autism and I had never heard anything about it. And it was at that special school I met two severely or classically autistic individuals, Sarah, who was five, and Russell, who was seven. And I was, I suppose, enchanted by many aspects of two children who looked like any other kids. But it was almost as though they came from another planet in the sense that what other kids would enjoy, socializing, change, spontaneity, they hated. Yet things that other kids would find boring, playing with water for about five hours, um, they really thoroughly enjoyed. And when I tried to connect, there was a, a difficulty in connecting both ways. And so on meeting such children, and there has actually been a, in Australia the uh, Australian story, and last September they had um, found in translation which was a half-hour documentary on my life story. So if you want to find out more information, found in translation on YouTube. But it was from that day I decided to take a career in autism and discovered whatever I could uh, from then on. And, of course, that was at the beginning when autism was the silent, aloof, severely disabled, poor prognosis person. And I was there right at the beginning to discover that it was a continuum, like visual impairment. You can have those who are blind, very obvious, but technically I am visually impaired. I need my glasses. So I'm visually impaired, but I'm not blind. And as we explore the continuum, we found those who are blind to the social world in a way and needed help and guidance in that area. That's how I began professionally, then chose to do PhD and so on. But mm -hmm. I also, later on, as I was, I, I, in many ways, uh, within the family, <clears throat> my mother, uh, I would phone every Sunday. And it was one Sunday about five or six years ago when I was talking to her and she said, Anthony, I've just read an article on Asperger's syndrome. I said, yes, mother. And she said, your stepfather, Bernard, whom she married when I was six years old, engineer. She said, he's Asperger's syndrome. And I said, yes, mother, don't you actually read my books? <laughs> and, uh, and yes, and so, in other words, when I was six years old and she married Bernard, I became aware of difference in a particular dimension. And indeed, yes, Asperger's syndrome was the description of why he was different. So I see myself as bilingual. I was brought up in an Aspie household. And I watched as my mother became Aspie to cope with her husband. And so my bilingual characteristics began at the age of six. What I've also discovered is a history of Asperger's in my extended family that we didn't know at the time. So I say there are some people who are pre-wired neurologically to have Asperger's, and there are some who are pre-wired to understand it. 
And that's what happened. And my daughter works with kids with autism, but I never taught her anything. And she just knows what to do. So my story is one of a journey of discovery, recognizing this professionally, but then within the family. So my knowledge isn't just primarily academic or clinical. Of course, I have a son with Asperger's syndrome who um, has taught me a great deal. And we may use my knowledge of will uh, in his characteristics to illustrate some points that will come through in this conversation. So first question is a little bit my journey. It's still going on. I am still learning. I am still enjoying what I discover. And every week, if not every day, I'll discover something new. And uh, I do. So that's the answer to your first question. <laughs> Lovely. Um, and I think, too, what you said, um, we're sort of learning more and more about Asperger's and autism. And um, I suppose from your perspective, because you have been in the game for so long, you have been really involved in it so intensely um, from your home perspective and from your clinical perspective, how has our... Um, our understanding of autism changed over the years and how do you think it will continue to change over the next 20 years or so? Okay, when I began, there were two theories. One was that it was a form of schizophrenia or psychosis. We now know this is not true. The withdrawal is not because of a psychosis, it's because of confusion in social situations. Uh, but it was also viewed as caused by bad parenting and it was all mum's fault and her lack of ability to relate to her child, the refrigerator mum, is the cause of this. Well, we now know that madness is hereditary. You get it from your children. And when you have an ASD kid, it changes you. Um, but it's that change which has come from the child, not you causing that with the child. So we now know that's not true. We then recognize that it's a neurodevelopmental condition, whether it's a disorder, is currently under review. And in England, it's now called autism spectrum conditions rather than disorder, because disorder implies a psychiatric disability. And I'm a bit cautious of labeling people disordered disability when in many ways they have talents that we need. So we recognize that the brain is wired differently and not necessarily defectively. My own description of ASD is it describes someone who has a different way of perceiving, thinking, learning, and relating. But it's a minority in a world of social zealots. And those with Asperger's have found in life something more interesting than socializing. Okay. But they have to socialize, especially at school. I think as the changes occurred, we've recognized that the difficulties the person has with socializing are qualities that can be taught. We didn't know that to begin with. And so one of the interesting things is that if you have what I call autism pure, that is just the social difficulties, the reading face, the expressions, body language, the reciprocity and in interaction, uh, the making friends and so on. If you just have the core features, um, plus the sensory perhaps, then you can eventually move out of it. And what I found recently, one of the latest trends, 
is actually undiagnosing those in their late teens and 20s that have become late developers. They've acquired the skills by understanding and support. They're below the threshold. But if you have ASD plus intellectual impairment or language impairment or mood disorder, anxiety and depression, then the prognosis is not so good. So we really do need to focus on those. But when I look at our understanding, it's also going to be what do we need to look at in the future? And my view is there are certain areas that I think are going to be very interesting. Uh, first of all, I think it's going to be the autisms that we will find. There are different subgroups from different origins. There's no one simple cause. There are many causes. There are many expressions. It's what we call a very heterogeneous group. <clears throat> I think also there's going to be research, I hope, on sensory sensitivity. It's because neurotypicals don't get it. They don't research it. And for many with ASD, it is that sudden sharp noise. It's that aroma. It's that color. It's the sensory overwhelming, which causes many meltdowns. And we don't know enough. It's not the sensory system itself. It's how the brain processes that information. And I think also we need to find out more on the aging process to find out for those we've known for decades, what is the aging characteristic we need to be aware of. And I think that in due course, people will understand that this is difference, not defect. And for example, I'm involved with a number of projects that some of the big international companies, the big banks, the big telecommunications and, and computer uh, companies are actually seeking to recruit people with Asperger's because they are the most original in thinking, the best at spotting errors and perfectionism. And I think if there are going to be any major advances in a cure for cancer or the latest technology, it's going to be done by those with ASD. Interesting. That's interesting. Now, I want to jump back to something that you said um, just then, and it was about undiagnosing. And I haven't heard of that term um, in this way. And so you're saying that people on the spectrum, there is that capacity to actually move off the spectrum. Yes. Now, I've got to be careful on this because one of the ways of coping with Asperger's is to observe, analyse and imitate. That's what my son did. And he said to me, Dad, doesn't everyone learn socialising by watching and copying it? I said, no. Some people just know. They are pre-wired neurologically to know what to do. So you've got to be careful. There can be a false cure, in inverted commas, by those who are acting. They have a mask. They have a persona. But it's absolutely exhausting and prevents the development of the real self. So some may artificially be, in inverted commas, cured because they have an act every day. They should be given an honorary Oscar for how they act neurotypical. But then there's another group who do acquire those abilities. And it's almost as though the 5,000 piece social jigsaw puzzle suddenly makes sense, there are connections, and they complete the puzzle. So the level of expression is now not severe enough to need special consideration or a diagnosis. Now, it's important, though, for such individuals 
It's not a totally removed characteristic, but in society's terms, they are married, they have a job, they are successful. However, in the family, their partner and children may be aware of certain challenges. And in employment, to be careful not to be moved into employment beyond your capabilities. So it's still there. It's still wired in, but it is not as effective in daily life as it was when they were at high school. Mm, mm, that's very interesting. Um, now, you've said that autism or Asperger's syndrome is something to be celebrated and not hidden, and that's something that you talk about quite a bit. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of expand on this. Okay. Um, well, some of the kindest, nicest people I've ever known have Asperger's syndrome. And my concern as a clinician <clears throat> is not Asperger's itself. No. It is what neurotypicals will do to corrupt, destroy, and contaminate them. In rejection, bullying, humiliation, and teasing will destroy their self-esteem. Um, so I celebrate a different way of thinking. It's thinking outside the box. As Temple Grandin said, if we were left to use socialites, we would still be in caves talking to each other. <laughs> so I think we need to harness diversity and use it for the common good. If you are a Star Trek fan, it's Vulcans. And having the ability to combine to create the enterprise. So I think that uh, many of those qualities are not accepted. And when I work with teenagers, one of the things they're desperate for from their peer group is respect. And they don't get it. And that's why sometimes they hear their special interest is superheroes because they're respected and valued or they want to be in some way recognized that this is a person of true worth. And many see them as second rate, defective. And almost because they're not good socially, they're viewed as non-human. And if they're viewed as non-human, you have no guilt for bullying and teasing. So I want people to accept and embrace Asperger's as part of human nature and that we will benefit from it. Mm. What about for the parents or for the kids who are really trying or really struggling to find their own gifts um, and, you know, every day is a battle and they're not embracing it and can't seem to celebrate those things, that, those, those strengths and the things that they're good at. What would you say to those kids or, or to the parents who are struggling at the moment? Okay, first of all, I would say that that child is incredibly brave to suffer school. And it's amazing that you keep going, despite the adversity, the rejection, the uh, tests and exams at school, not showing your true intellectual ability, teachers teaching you in a style for neurotypicals, not the Asperger style. They don't speak Aspergerese. And <clears throat> in that setting, it is amazing you continue to go. That shows that you are brave and tenacious. I think also for parents to primarily absorb and acknowledge the challenges they face, not necessarily to automatically go into fix mode, but really to, shall we say, non-judgmental, supportive listening to all your challenges, okay? 
I think what they need is assurance that their feelings and reactions are legitimate in the situation, not a character fault. Okay. Mm. Then I would ask parents to consider, okay, there are particular challenges. Let's work together with the child and perhaps with expertise from professionals to resolve some of the issues. So, yeah, I was just wondering for the kids who have, are struggling with making and keeping friends, um, how do they go about that? Okay, well, first of all, I've got to look at the motivation for friendships and the capacity for friendship. Um, it's not necessarily as though the person wants a dozen close friends and to be the centre of the social universe. Um, they're the Pluto in the social solar system. They're right out in the cold. And I think what we look for is that sometimes the person wants and needs solitude. They may have had enough socialising in the classroom. They want to process it. Their recovery in energy is in terms of solitude. So they actually want to be alone and safe, say, in the library. So that needs to be acknowledged. But the other part is how to join in and, and make friends, which is something no one was ever taught. For example... If you have a child with a language problem, off to the speech pathologist. If you've got a movement problem, coordination, OT and physio, absolutely. You've got intellectual disability, psychologist, guidance officer to assess on an intelligence scale and give guidance in what you need to do. But we don't have that socially. We do not have a thorough assessment for social cognition. And we do not have a group of therapists who specialize in developing the ability to work out what people are thinking and feeling, to read body language and gestures, and above all, to make friends. So it's not how to read a book, it's how to read a face. And humans have over 400 facial expressions, which are usually there in a millisecond. And you're supposed to learn those. And you're supposed to learn all the facial expressions, the tone of voice, the gestures, and the context, all four dimensions, which will vary, at the same time, the complexity of it is extraordinary. So first of all, what we do with the kids is whatever they do right, we point it out and applaud it. So when so-and-so lost her eraser and you helped her find it, thanks. That was a friendly thing to do, helping your friend find something. And when Jacob fell over and you went over to Jacob and said, are you okay, Jacob? That's a caring thing to do, a friendly thing to do. Thank you. That was the right thing to do. And when you were playing soccer and Peter scored a goal and you went, yeah, great goal. That was a compliment. That was a friendly thing to do. So the first thing to do is notice what they do and tell them. Because if it's a maths test, you've got a tick or applause, but you don't get that socially. Now, the next stage is people will notice you either missed the cue or you didn't know how to respond. And you need to teach that. Carol Gray's social stories are a wonderful way of explaining the social world. And so it's going through what skills are there that need to be reinforced to build confidence and what skills need to be acquired in a way that is discovery, not feeling stupid or a failure. Okay? Now, when you do the social skills training and friendship, you can't just work with a kid. You've got to work with their peer group. Because if they make all the overtures and the other kids say, go away, don't want to play with you, then it's not going to work. 
So they must be brought into the loop to be able to accommodate. So if there's a group of three or four kids playing and the kid with ASD is on the periphery looking at them, not knowing the cue to join in, is to say, oh, oh, Rachel, come on, join us. Uh, come and join us. And to actually recognize that they're trying to join in, but they don't know quite how to. So you must work with the others. Absolutely. And I think what you said there is so um, important is that we need to teach, explicitly teach those social skills. You know, like we explicitly teach handwriting and maths and everything else like that. For these kids, they're not picking up on those social cues. So it's really important to break it down. And as you said, show them um, and teach them those social skills. Mm. Now, it tends to change as time goes by. To a certain extent, you can teach those skills fairly well at primary school. And uh, they may accommodate that very well in a group setting or individually. But at high school, there can be an acute sense of being different and not wanting to be perceived and treated in a different way to other teenagers. So they may not like a social skills group or program. But what they may do is enjoy drama. And it's a socially acceptable activity, but it's not a Shakespearean play. It's actually how do you act when somebody's bullying you? How do you act in a conversation? So we sometimes use drama classes and drama teachers to teach the skills, but in a socially acceptable way, to a level that some do become professional actors. Yeah. Wow. What about adults? Um, because as you mentioned earlier, because our diagnostic criteria and everything's changing and we're starting to diagnose um, adults now who we sort of missed early days because we didn't know as much about Asperger's, um, what about adults now if they're having challenges with social skills in the workplace um, and just out in the community? How, how do we teach them? If okay. I think there are, there are many pathways to the diagnosis of adults. One is because a relative has been diagnosed. And sometimes it may be a mum whose child, her daughter perhaps, who's diagnosed and goes through all the descriptions with the professional, but then says, but I did that as a child. What you're describing there was me. Is that through her own child or a family member, should we say, uh, a grandson is diagnosed and then realised the grandfather has had, always had those features. And so on, being successful as an engineer, accountant, or information technology, but socially has had a number of challenges that their partner, grandma, has compensated for. So when we look at the, the pathways for diagnosis, another way is a lack of success in career, considering their qualifications and intellect. And it may be, for example, all the skills in friendship are the skills you need for teamwork in a job. And reading people is how you get past an interview. So if you're not doing that successfully, you may not get a job or keep a job. And so there may be underemployment or lack of employment. Another pathway can be the exhaustion of trying to cope with life, the scarring from rejection and bullying and teasing and a number of factors may lead to a clinical depression or anxiety disorder or personality disorder or eating disorder. 
And so then it's recognized that actually there's been a pattern through the years that the person has been able to compensate for and people have tolerated in a number of ways. But at last we recognize there is an explanation and that's useful because you can then have closure with the past. You can understand who you are and not to look at relationship and career to solve problems that do not need solving. And you may be able to be what I call a first rate Aspie, not a second rate neurotypical. Mm, I like that. I'll use that. I'm going to take that one. <laughs> um, okay. So kids on the spectrum can be really difficult to motivate if they're not engaging in one of their areas of interest. How, what sort of advice would you give to parents who want to um, motivate their kids in other areas? Okay. There are several motivators. One of the things that the kids have, if they are not good socially and you're not good at sport, the one thing you've got is your intellect. And the worst insult is to be called stupid. So when I'm doing a verbal reward, it is not, oh, you've made my day. I'm so pleased. I'm so proud of you. Um, because that altruistic desire to please people may not be as strong. But what does work is, wow, you're smart. That shows how intelligent you are. You are amazing in how your mind works. So I appeal to intellectual vanity, not the altruistic desire to please people. What does the person value, apart from special interests, is going to be their intellect. So I will use that. Or... As many kids and adults with Asperger's will say, okay, what's in it for me? And so, and so they're natural capitalists. And so what I go through is, okay, an extra half hour with Minecraft. Okay. So in other words, if you do it, you've earned access to what you want to do. And it's a very mercenary approach, but it does work. So there's got to be a payoff in terms of intellectual vanity or access to something the person values. Mm -hmm. So some sort of reinforcer or reward. Yes. In a classic sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so jumping to self-regulation, because this can be a really um, challenging um, area, I suppose, mm -hmm. that parents have a lot of difficulty with, um, with the intensity managing that intensity of the kids' emotions. Um, what are the best ways that parents can support their kids with this? Okay, I'm going to be very blunt. Uh, employing you as a personal trainer, which is one of the things that you do. Because when I do my programs on managing anxiety and depression, and I ask the guys in the toolbox, the many tools we introduced you to, which was the tool that was the best physical exercise? But often their view is I'm clumsy, I'm poorly coordinated. Their preferred activities are solitary, sedentary, screen watching. And so what you've got to do is assess their personality type and body type and identify a program of physical activities that they will enjoy and naturally be good at. And the way I describe it is in a pool, some kids sink and some kids float. Okay? <laughs> and you've got to decide, well, if he sinks, not worth it. Okay, or this kid has an ability of rhythm of running, that that's their way. Or this kid really loves horse riding, 
or has a natural talent in something like fencing or an ability in a sporting activity that may involve accuracy, maybe basketball through the hoop. Also, the routine and regimentation of a gym of going through a sequence and ticking off the box of what you've done. So when it comes to emotion management, I think one of the first things is in terms of physical release. So when he gets home from school, you say, okay, tough day at school. Do you want to go for a run? Do you want to go cycling? Do you want to bounce on the trampoline? Do you want to run with the dog? The next one is teaching relaxation from deep breathing to yoga and meditation. Now, I'm of a generation that yoga and meditation was this obscure, esoteric, (laughs) Eastern mumbo jumbo, hippie, nimbin rubbish. It's not. It's been around for 5,000 years, much longer than any psychologist. And so we're finding that the meditation, mindfulness, yoga can work. And when we look at mindfulness in the sense of the ability to focus on the here and now, the environment, those with ASD fall into two groups. There's a group that this strategy of being tuned in to the sensory system and your body and relaxing really does help them. But there's another group, half, who are spending their whole life stopping their sensitivity to sensory experiences. And when you ask them to focus on it, they spend everything creating a blocker to those experiences and they hate it. They are inundated with sensory experience. So that group, mindfulness is not going to work. They often are the group that may work more with a yoga approach than the mindfulness approach. Or it's just strategies to help them learn how to relax. And sometimes what I'll say to them is if you relax, you're going to be smarter. Because when you're relaxed, you can access your memory. You can access your ideas. You'll get greater marks at school if when you're doing an exam, you know how to relax. Oh, right, I'll try it then. Mm. So we've got to learn Aspergerese. We've got to sell it. And they have to buy it, not in money, but in time. And they've got to see the personal value. Another a way of coping with the intense emotions is to get that person to be aware, for example, of meltdown on its way. This is where I find great value in the new sports technology of heart rate. And that will give you an opportunity to sense when you are becoming more agitated, your heart rate increases and a forewarning. But also most of these devices will tell you the heart rate for the day. So when it gets home from school, you plug it into the computer and you get a screen image of his heart rate throughout the day. And then you say, okay, 2.15, what happened? We had a surprise test. 10 o'clock, what happened? Mrs. Smith said she wouldn't be in class that afternoon. And Mrs. Jones, who can't control the class, was going to be in charge. My stress levels went through the roof. So that gives the school a recognition of the stress the person is going through that may not be apparent in facial expression and body language, but it's there as data. Okay. So you need to know what are the situations, how to cope with them. We also use social strategies that there are certain people who by their mere presence are like a sponge and soak it up. And there are other people who are like petrol on a barbecue, make it just worse. So we find the social side. But one of the social tools is pets. 
animals are better than psychologists at relaxing self-acceptance, enjoyment of your company. But the other social tool is solitude, but safe solitude. And if you're at school, how can you ever be alone? It's those sorts of things. We also go through um, defective thinking in the sense of I'm stupid. I'll never have any friends. Of course, that's what's been reinforced by the other kids. No, where's it? No, the, the other kids, they are too immature in their appreciation of your qualities. But when they're adults, they'll really appreciate you. It's true, actually. Um, so it's going through their thinking style, which tends to be overdramatic catastrophizing. And we go through, where's the evidence for this? Have a thinking approach, etc. So those are some of the things we go through. We go through some of the things that we're cautious about. The special interest is a thought blocker. It works, but it doesn't really deal with the feeling. It suppresses it. So when they switch Minecraft off, it rebounds as powerful as ever, which means that when he switches off to go to sleep, all those feelings and thoughts spiral out of control and sleep is more elusive. So it's a blocker, not something that actually dissolves it. It's useful, but it's not a therapy. So those are the sorts of things that we will go through. Mm. Yes, that is very comprehensive. Um, and I think out of all my interviews, the one thing that has been very consistent across the board is movement um, and inserting that movement throughout the day. So before they even need it, just so their body starts to regulate um, throughout the day before they get to that melting point. Um, and I found it interesting about the stress response. So the heart rate, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um because often, like you said, kids will slowly, um, you know, take hit after hit after hit. You know, it could be the tag on the back of their T-shirt and then someone looks at them the wrong way or whatever it is and it slowly builds up um, and then they'll hit someone or something will happen and the teacher will say, well, there was no, um, you know, there was no trigger for this. Nothing happened. Um, it just happened out of nowhere. So if we could measure that stress response and start to realise that, well, actually, there was a build-up and there was a reason for this. Now, in the United States, somebody has just got a, a huge research grant to see if there is an algorithm, that is a formula of heart rate to indicate meltdown on its way. So in other words, that person may cope with four triggers, but on the fifth, they explode. So after the fourth, it goes beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Watch out. You're just on the threshold. Pull back relax, take a break, go to the toilet, do whatever you can to get that heart rate down because the next time it goes up, it's going to tip you over. Mm. Is that the Centre for Discovery? Are they, because they're doing I'm something. not sure. If this is, a, a, I get information on research grants and so on coming through and, and they've only got the grant money. They haven't got the data. But what it means is eventually, I think you'll buy a watch that will monitor that individual and then provide information on their unique pattern of preceding heart rate to a meltdown. Mm. Yeah, very valuable. Um, and because a lot of kids will experience, obviously, this stress causes anxiety and it can also cause, um, be a trigger for depression as well. Um, what can parents watch out for? And... Um, yeah, what can be the triggers for this depression and anxiety in kids and what can parents do to help support their kids? Okay, first of all, the, there are many reasons for depression. 
One, interestingly, can be genetics in the sense we know statistically there's a higher level of depression in families with a kid with ASD. The etiology of this we don't know, but it may be, first of all, an inherited characteristic. Secondly, when I explore the thinking of the person with ASD when they're depressed, of low self-esteem and so on, I think you didn't get low self-esteem from your parents. You did not get it from the teachers. You got it from your peer group but you didn't have friends to contradict it. You couldn't articulate it easily in speech to tell anybody. And so you suffered in silence, but you are depressed because of the attitude of your peer group. The third one I look for is energy depletion. That is, there is so much energy used in trying to cope with your anxiety, cope with the schoolwork, with change, with crowds, with all the aromas and the sensory sensitivity, our, all those sorts of things, we don't realize that life is incredibly stressful for those with ASD. And eventually, when your energy is depleted, you have an energy depleted depression. It's a crash. Now, the signs that I look for uh, are these. Now, there are the classic signs of changes in eating, sleep cycle, and, and those sorts of things. Negative comments, no, I can't do it, I'm not good enough, and, and so on. Those are the classic ones, and any GP will be able to give you a questionnaire, or you can get on the internet those questionnaires that will indicate that. But for ASD, I find that there can be a change in the special interest from, say, flags and frogs and cute and endearing to movies where death is a thing. Okay, so there may be something that's going to occur. Another sign is what I call a depression attack. When you have the meltdown, it's either externalized, smash, hit, verbally abusive. <laughs> There's a huge roaring explosion of energy that's outwardly directed to objects and people, but now it's an implosion directed at the self. No, no, mum, you hate me, mum. You, you've never loved me. You love my sister more than you love me. And I'd be better off if you were dead and, and, and grandma could come to stay and, and, and I can't cope with it anymore. And, and I, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm going. I can't stand this. And so you have a depression attack, which is dangerous because you can get self-harm. It is very intense. It is very real. And the person is in such despair and they'll do almost anything to stop it. And when I ask them, when you cut yourself in that, what's your reaction? They say, it calms me. It's soothing. Or the physical pain blocks the emotional pain. So I look for any self-harm, any implosions. But the, the sign that worries me the most is when the special interest is no longer enjoyable. That's when the lights are going out because that's your energizer, that's your pleasure. There is nothing in life better than the special interest. In an anhedonic, that is no pleasure in anything, that's the last to go. And if he says, oh, I don't like my photography anymore, no, I don't like collecting coins, no, it just, I look at it and I think, nah, and I put it away. That's when I'm worried, <laughs> because that's a sign of a very significant depression. So those are the signs I would ask parents to check for. Now, actually, strangely enough, I've actually written a book on this. And uh, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do a quick bit of promotion. So I'm just going to hold on.
and get my book. Go for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I will use this as, this is the commercial break. <laughs> this is a book called Exploring Depression and Beating the Blues, written with my great friend and colleague, Michelle Garnett, published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers. But it is a, a self-help book for the person with Asperger's and their families. In other words, it's not a psychologist's manual. And we wrote it deliberately so that people could use it who have not got access to a clinical psychologist. Okay. So I would recommend that as a way of exploring why that person is depressed. We go through many reasons, tick the box, but then we have 10 stages to go through on energy accounting, how to check when your energy levels are going low, how to cope with the sensory, how to cope with your thinking that I'm stupid, bad, etc. But one of the things we found in doing all our programs was that a characteristic of ASD is uh, how are you feeling now? I don't know. Okay. Well, what were you feeling when you wanted to kill yourself? I don't know. And I'll now answer their question. I don't know how to grasp one of the many thoughts or feelings swirling in my mind, hold it, identify it, and explain it in speech so that you will understand. However, what we found is that those with ASD had a remarkable talent in expressing their feelings in the arts. So we would say, okay, create me on Spotify a playlist of music that in the music or the lyrics, it perfectly describes your sadness. Go to Google Images, type in sad. You'll have 500 images. Choose five images that represent your sadness. You are a great fan of Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling thought of Dementors as describing her own episodes of depression. Choose a scene in one of the Harry Potter books that describes your feelings. Choose a scene from a Star Wars movie. Write a poem. Send an email. Create a picture or sculpture. A picture is worth a thousand words. And some with ASD are talented in the arts because of this characteristic. That's their career. So what they do is they can express the self and their emotions through their hands or, or their ability or to write stories. So what you're getting, so what you're getting is being, is able, being to, able to... We need a bit of, we uh, a bit echo, of here. Uh, echo here. Oh, it's okay on my end. Okay, okay. Because I, I can hear I, myself, I can hear myself. Mm. afterwards. Afterwards. It, okay, I might... Okay, I, there's a delay of a, a fraction of a second. I may turn that down a bit. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, perfect. Good. Uh, I'll just make it so that I can just hear you. Okay. Okay. So to return to the theme is we often work with a music therapist, art therapist, or anything you can do Anything other than look at me and tell me, it's converting thought and emotion to speech. And that may lead to a talent as a pianist or as an artist or as a playwright or author into exploring the self and feelings and your observations through the arts. And we're encouraging that as much as possible. Mm. And I think it's so important. I love that way of expressing the feelings and the self rather than using words um, through 
other ways like Google images. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that or using a song, which some kids are really, you know, can be attached to and it can express their emotions. I think that's, um, yeah, such a valuable way that parents and other people can help them express how they're feeling. In particular for teenagers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, Alrighty, I, I suppose I wanted to touch on a bit of a personal um, topic now, and that is the relatively recent diagnosis of your son. Um, if you feel comfortable, if you could talk through a bit about your personal journey and the realisation that your son was on the spectrum and any new insights, I suppose, that you've had into the world of autism since his diagnosis. Okay. Um, <clears throat> he's 36, so when he was little... We didn't know much about Asperger's had not been identified. And so he was a little late in talking. He was very emotional, very reactive to certain sensory experiences, etc. But doing well at school and at primary school had a number of friends. What we now know was they were friends because he would take risks. He knew he could be popular by jumping his bike further than anyone else or making a humorous comment. So he was popular because he would do audacious things, and that was his, his role. But he really wasn't so good at, at, at reading the signals, etc. but not sufficient to warrant investigation because we had no conceptualization of a particular condition that he had. But he'd always been highly anxious, and anxiety was there from infancy. And when he reached puberty, the anxiety came in as not a deluge, but as a tsunami. It was horrendous. But because he was associated with a naughty risk-taking group, he had always got high levels of what we call generalized anxiety disorder. He was a worrier all the time. But when they introduced him to alcohol and marijuana, for the first time in his life, he found that those feelings were at a level he'd never experienced before. All those spiraling negative thoughts were calmed. He felt a sense of well-being he'd never had in his life before. And that was the beginning of addiction. And being Aspie, he then wanted to explore every drug at every level. And he became the alternative Dr. Atwood because people would ask him for advice on what he'd taken and he knew all about it from the internet and so on. But when you have drugs and take drugs, you, are, you either take drugs to engage or disengage from society. To engage by, if you're socially anxious or performance, or you're not so sure, it relaxes you. And you join a club for whom social skills aren't important. It's to help each other become intoxicated, and in that group, they have their own culture, expectations, and they have a broad tolerance of a range of differences. So in that group, he found a sense of identity. But another reason you take drugs is to create a bubble, to detach yourself from reality, to not worry about your past or your present or your future. You are emotionally detached. But when you're emotionally detached, nobody can reach you. And that's what you're trying to do is detach yourself. So no therapies will work. No parent will get through. So when he was about 14, 15, he became a drug addict. 
initially with alcohol, alcohol and marijuana, but then morphine, speed. Speed is absolutely dreadful, ice in particular. Uh, he became somebody who injects morphine and he went really off the rails. Now, at that stage, all you saw was addiction. So up to his early teens, he was a camouflager, which we first thought of. And one of the things he's taught me is how boys can do what the girls with Asperger's will do. Observe, analyze and imitate. Fake it till you make it. Have a mask. Use your intellect. It's exhausting, but it gets you by. And so what happened was that throughout all the children's development, I'd always videotape them because I'm a great nostalgia freak. And, so on. Um, and I got all this video when they were very young. But I decided not to watch it because it was too heartbreaking to see Will as he was in comparison to the way he, he, he was then at that stage. So I, I really found it very difficult to take. But our daughter, Rosie, who works in the area of autism as a teacher, said, Dad, Dad, come on, I, I, want, to, I want to look at them. Come on, let, let, let's look. So she convinced me one Christmas. And I said, look, OK, Rosie, you choose the year. You choose what? And she chose a year when Will was about four. And we both sat on the settee watching it. And we turned to each other and said, he's Asperger's. Because she knows, because she teaches Asperger preschool kids, I know now what we didn't know 32 years ago. And we said, yes, he is. And then all the pennies dropped. It, it really connect, connect, connect. And that's helped him enormously in understanding uh, why he's different. He's very much embraces and accepts. He said, Dad, I'm Aspie. You can't expect me to do that. I'm Aspie. <laughs> Which is, which is true. <laughs> so what it has taught me is the pathway. Uh, he's an amazing person because um, drugs are expensive. And so he committed armed robbery uh, twice and was uh, arrested and sent to prison for three years. He's served two years in prison. And he's just written a book on how to help Aspis in prison. And a few weeks ago, he and I went down to Melbourne to give a one-day presentation to uh, corrective services in Victoria, how to identify and help people with Asperger's in the prison and probation and parole services. And it was delightful to be Atwood and Son um, in making positive use of that. And he was very eloquent and he wasn't intoxicated at the time. So I was very proud of what he could do. So it's taught me about identifying it in, at home because love is blind. And I've since got lots of emails from other people who have said, thank you. I work in the area and now know that my son or daughter has this, but I was blind to it, even though I saw it every day in my professional life. So, um, yeah. So that's the answer to your question. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story because I know um, there will be so many other parents listening into this who will be able to resonate with that as well. Um, and I have, honestly, a million and one other questions that I could ask you today, but I think we'll wrap it up. And um, we always finish with the five rapid-fire questions. So I'll start with question number one. What is one habit that parents can implement today? 
Be calm. Because if you get upset, it's going to make the situation worse. Those with ASD have a sixth sense of negativity. And you on your scale of zero to 10 or a two, he's going to respond as though you're eight or nine. So whatever you can, the first thing I would say can implement today, when upset, hide it, become. Great. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Uh, nothing, because they've asked everything. <laughs> Perfect. What book would you recommend that all parents read? Of course, my book. Good <laughs> heavens. <laughs> There's so many. Well, I think go to Jessica Kingsley Publishers, jkb.com. It is the primary source of literature in this area, and it covers everything from early diagnosis to couples and relationships. I've written half a dozen books that are published there, written the foreword for scores of books. So if you're interested and if you want a book, go to jkp.com. Excellent. Number four, what is one of your top unfinished bucket list items to return to Herefordshire in England Lovely. where my wife and I went in 1978 before children and it was the creation of children there and it's to go back in time to then and to explore it together we would love to but we can't because of Will um, one of us has to stay with him because he's still an addict. And there are still risks, uh, suicide risks and overdose risks, that one of us has to stay there. So I went to England earlier this year. Sarah is going there in September, but we have to go separately. But my unfinished bucket list is for both of us to go back to the house there, to go back to the pubs we enjoy, to have a picnic in the Forest of Dean, and to just walk the walks by the River Wye that we had. That's on my list. Well, that's on, that's on the top of my list, actually. Lovely. That's beautiful. Um, number five, last question. So if you could only offer one piece of advice to the parents out there listening today, what would it be? Love and accept your child. Accept who they are. Mm -hmm. And that is important. And express your love for that person. Because what's important in life is to feel accepted and loved. That's more important than any intervention program. And that will give the resilience to cope with neurotypicals. Mm, so important. Now, how can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch? Okay, first of all, I've got a Facebook page. That will give you information. Webpage, tonyatwood.com.au. Also, go to YouTube, type in Tony Atwood. And especially Ask Dr. Tony. There are about 200 videos on YouTube uh, that will go through many topics. So YouTube, Facebook, and my webpage. Excellent. Um, now, it has been an absolute pleasure. Listening to you is so mesmerizing. I could listen to you all day and just soak up all your knowledge and everything that you have to say on Asperger's. Um, and... Thank you for everything that okay. you do. What, what I'm going to ask you to do, if you can, is send me a link that I can put on my Facebook page. Yes, absolutely. Because okay? I think there'll be a lot of people who follow my Facebook page would like to watch this. Mm, absolutely. That is, I would love that. Um, yeah. It, I mean, you have given 
everyone such a deeper understanding of autism and Asperger's and how we can really support people on the spectrum. Um, and every time I listen to you, so I've probably listened to you 200 videos online. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, you you have got such a wealth of knowledge and I think you really are that translator between the two cultures. Um, mm-hmm. So I really thank you so much for every everything that you have brought to the community. It's just invaluable. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed the journey. Um, it has given me such validation and so many thrills that um, when I met uh, Hans Asperger's daughter, Maria, she said, Tony, your special interest is Asperger's syndrome. I suppose it is. Thanks, guys, for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook, so I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils. And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I have created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, these are printables that are available on the, on the website so you can access today. Finally, if you love this fortnightly injection of information, please subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is head to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And every fortnight, you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.